Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Cristela Alonso grew up so poor in Texas, the first-generation Mexican-American lived with her single mother and siblings in an abandoned diner. Back then, she learned English from watching TV and dreamed of life as an actress. She found her true love in stand-up comedy, and that eventually led to her co-creating and starring in her own ABC sitcom, Cristela. She could have gone on to co-anchor The View. Who knows? She still might. In the meantime, she gives a voice to the upcoming Angry Birds movie and is prepping her first Netflix special. Priscilla let me know how she has made the most of her opportunities and even created one of her own. So let's get to it. Uh, Cristela Alonso, thank you so much for joining me. Last things first. Yes. We have a lot to talk about. So much. I want to pick up. Where we left off when I saw you at Gotham Comedy Club. Yes. Because you probably get some interesting guests who come to your show. Yes. And you were telling me about uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's yeah, yeah, yeah. The parents Miranda's. coming yeah, to see you. Yeah, the Miranda's. Uh-huh. Did you? <laughs> you know, their son has the hardest ticket to yeah. get in New York City. That's what I've heard. Hamilton. It's like old school rent times a million. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So what's it like knowing that they're coming to see your show? It's weird. I was, you know, uh, I've seen Hamilton three times. I love Hamilton. It's, you know, an amazing musical. It's my, my favorite musical ever. So for uh, his parents, who are friends, um, to come and see me, I feel like the expectations are high, just in theory. I mean, it's not like they expect me to break out into song and dance or anything. Like, what's the deal with planes? Like, you know, definitely not. But still, at the same time, when I saw them, they said they had never been to a comedy club ever. Like, they had no idea how it worked. They had no idea, you know. They came to see me. That I was the first one, the first comic they've ever come to see. So it's 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 a lot of pressure when people tell you that. That fascinates me on several levels. One... Their son is a performer who's yeah. performed in comedy clubs, yeah. as well as on Broadway and uh-huh. on TV and movies. But they hadn't been to see, to, to see him in a comedy club. Right? They hadn't gone to any comedy show. They how did how did no how did comedy. you win them over? Well, you, you know, uh, his mom was just super sweet. Uh, I, the second time I went to see Hamilton at the Public, I was hosting the View that week, okay. and I tweeted that I was going to see Hamilton. And she said, she, she follows me on Twitter. We follow each other on Twitter. And she said, uh, I, I, I want to come down and meet you. And I thought, are you sure? Like, <laughs> are you sure you want to meet me? Like, I don't even understand that. And um, after the show, I didn't even know how to find her. But mm-hmm. she was actually waiting outside of, you know, where the, you know, right by the, you know, the lobby. She waited for me and she recognized me and, you know, I, she was just very she loved my show that's how she that's how we met she was a big fan of my show um Christella on ABC Christella on ABC the now canceled Christella on 2014, ABC 2014 2015 <laughs> I know in available on Netflix <laughs> available on Netflix you can relive the show you didn't see the first time you can not watch it again anytime you want on Netflix <laughs> so um 
she actually had family. She has Mexican uh, relatives that uh, they're from Eagle Pass, which is okay. two hours away from where I grew up in McAllen, Texas. So she loved the show because she related to the lifestyle on the show because of the relatives. Right. So we just became friends. And when I announced that I was coming into uh, you know New York to do Gotham, she's like, I'm going. And I, I was surprised. I was like... This is New York. You have so many other things to do. You can go see Hamilton if you want. <laughs> you can see Hamilton whenever you want. And they came out, and they were very sweet. I love those guys. And were, what was their uh, report card on Comedy Club? They loved it. Now, they were the – they're the people – so many times when, I, when you talk to people that have never been to a comedy club, they're afraid that the comics are going to pick on them. Right. And, and they were afraid that comics were going to pick on them. And I told them before the show, I don't pick on people. I never pick on the audience. But the MC actually picks on the audience, which I forgot. So he picked on them. And, you know, like, "Ah, I just told you that no one was going to pick on you. And the first guy up picked on you. But they had a great time. Okay, it didn't spoil their... No, 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 no. They, They had a great time. Now, what about your first time in a comedy club? First time. Do you, you remember the first time you went to a comedy club? Yeah, actually, the first time I went to a comedy club ever, I loved stand-up growing up. First time I ever went to one was uh, the Funny Bone in St. Louis. I was. Uh, How were you in St. Louis? Eighteen years old. I I tried to go to college. I, there was okay. a theater conservatory in St. Louis, and I was there, and I loved stand-up. And uh, I want to say the first comic I ever saw was Dave Chappelle at the funny bone and wow. it was right after he had done half baked okay and it was just that's still a great get for the funny bone in oh yeah 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 oh St. Louis. yeah absolutely and actually my friend in college uh her name's joy she knew the mc that was working with Chappelle that week and and i just wanted to go see him live because i actually liked him you know i just i was familiar with Chappelle. right and uh she took me we went to go see him and it was kind of crazy to see it live. I had grown up seeing stand-up, but I didn't know it was a job. You know, it didn't really click for me because I grew up in a border town. You know, the closest comedy club to us is four or five hours away back then. So to see it in person, I thought, oh, like people do this on a regular basis because all I ever saw on TV were specials. Right. So you didn't, I didn't understand the concept of stand-up as in, you go out every week and you go to clubs and stuff. I had no idea. I was 18, or I think, when I, when I saw him. So I was pretty young. I was right out of high school, didn't know anything. Fell in love with it. I mean, Chappelle was back then what Chappelle is now. You know, it, no, he was, killed it. Yeah. And it was just like that thing where I'm like, I, I'm suckered in. Like, I, I'm sucked into this. He was killing this. you softly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love it. <laughs> yeah. So then how long did it take you to go to a comedy club again after that? Um, I couldn't afford it. Comedy clubs are expensive, even when they're for I tickets. heard you were poor. Yeah. I, <laughs> that's the thing. I know. That's the rumor. I couldn't afford it. And um, uh, the next time I went into a comedy club, I was in Dallas. Mm-hmm. My mom had passed away, and I was stuck in Dallas. I had lived in L.A. I was trying to make it, and I had to move back home to take care of my mom. She passed away, and I needed a job. And the only job that I knew I could do and get easy was a server job. 
Is that so, what you had been doing before? Yeah, yeah. You know, I had done that in the past. I had a lot of several, like, I had several jobs. I worked at an opera theater doing costumes. I did a bunch of wardrobe. I, I did a couple tours, uh, you know, like, of musicals and stuff. Did you like, learn that? Is that from learning at the theater conservatory? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, my mom used to make my clothes growing up, mm-hmm. so I know how to sew. So it was just kind of a given that I could do that. I was well, I had home pretty good at that. <laughs> So I knew how to sew a pillow. I used to wear my month. clothes to school, Sean. Is it the same thing? <laughs> Did you take your pillow to school <laughs> wearing it? Not a second time. <laughs> I, I um the okay. day I responded to two one ads. One was for an Italian restaurant mm-hmm. named Johnny Carinos, and I applied for a server, and they wanted to bring me back the next day to interview for a server. Then there was this vague want ad that just seemed like it, it was near my sister's house where I was living at the time. And I, it just said, office job, easy hours, answering phones, light office work. And I don't know why, because it didn't even tell you what it was. I went and drove to the building, and it was the improv in Addison. Why would like, they not tell you that? I have no idea. I have absolutely no clue. It's not like it's the FBI or anything. <laughs> it's the Addison Improv. Mm-hmm. And when I showed up and realized it was a comedy club, I thought, I want to work here. This is the club. Like, this is the Forget job Johnny's. I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I think I can kick it up a notch. <laughs> and I went and I, I, I filled out an application mm-hmm. and I lied and I made up all these references which later became a joke of mine in, in stand-up about oh, nice. how my sister lies. A, she's oh, she lies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Up, yeah, she lies. So you, yeah, I remember hearing. Yeah, that you have people she, call her up. <laughs> exactly. She's my fake reference for every yeah. job I've never had. So she pretended to be my fake boss. I pretended to work at her company, and I got an interview for the improv. And then I lied and said that I could do all these things on my resume, and I couldn't do any of it. And one of them was designing the like the calendar for the month and stuff. And I got the job, and I was so excited because now I got to see stand-up every week. I got hired on a Friday, like to work on a Friday, which I didn't know was one of the busiest right. nights for a comedy club. <laughs> and not only that. And a mess of a night, too. Yeah, Fridays a mess of a mess. night. But also, the first comic the first comic I, that was there when I started working was Mitch Hedberg. What, you, what year was this? This was 2003. Uh, 2002, I think. So, so Okay. He was already huge. Yeah. So I'm getting hired to answer phones, and I have to answer phones and sell tickets to one of the most popular comics around. So I'm learning how to do this while getting slammed. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. And then um, I want to say the second week after Mitch Hedberg was Kathleen Madigan. So it was this thing where insane schedules back then. It was like Mitch Hedberg, Kathleen Brian Regan, you know, just sell out, yeah, sell out, sell out, sell out. because it was right out. before the boom, so all these people were playing clubs. Exactly, so. exactly, everybody. Dane Cook was playing clubs. Yes, Gaffigan was like, you know, everybody, yeah, everybody that you could clubs. think of was playing clubs. So I got to see all of them, and I would see them every night, and I loved stand-up, but again, it's like I didn't know how to start. There was really no, Dallas wasn't known as a comedy scene where people started out doing right. stand-up there. Houston go, was, but not Houston Dallas. and Austin. So Dallas, I was like, well, how do you do it? And it wasn't till I want to say, maybe every now and then, a headliner would come in and they'd say, uh, you should do stand-up. 
And, like, none of, I don't think any of them remember. Like, I remember Kathleen told me, and mm-hmm. I ended up opening for Kathleen on the road later on for a while. Like, Wanda told me. You know, it, it was just that thing. How where, much were you, how, what were your interactions with them like? Well, you know, know, I ended up, uh, I was the office manager, mm-hmm. and then we were short staffed, so I ended up working the box office at night. But because I was working during the day, I would help coordinate with the radio stations. Back then, radio really helped with sales, you know. Yeah. This is before the internet. Were you driving them to the spots? No, okay. I, but, uh, you know, it was that thing where I would help with the advance sheets, and back then, a lot of times with certain comics, I would deal with certain comics. And then at night, with the box office, the Addison Improv doesn't have a green room. They have to share. The green room is kind of like the office. Really? So, awkurly, that setting helped me meet all these comics which doesn't they happen. had nowhere else yeah to they be. Had, yeah i i it pretty much either, like held them hostage and i'm like hey talk to me and like it was me. either you or the customers <laughs> exactly i'm like who do you want <laughs> me or like this other drunk person at midnight on a saturday how long did you spend in that job i was there for about i want to say maybe a year year okay. and a half or something i started doing stand-up Six months after I started doing, I started working there because then I learned how to do it. I learned about open mics. I learned, you know, there was a a, a local comic, Dean Lewis, who mm. taught a stand-up class, and he kept telling me, "You should take this class." Was his class at the Improv? Or yes, okay. and the graduation was you showcased at the Improv. Sure. Which, if anybody knows, any local comic knows, you rarely get respect from your home club. So it's so hard to get st- like stage time at the club that you, from the city that you're that you start out with. Yeah. So I took this class so that I could do a set at the Improv, and I have it. It's it's actually I have it. I have it on my YouTube channel, mm-hmm. and every year on my anniversary, I make it public for the day so that people can see the set. It's Labor Day. I started okay, on Labor Day. I was going to ask yeah. what day. I started so on Labor Day. People so will know. Labor Day, I, every Labor Day, every year, I always play. Uh, I make it public for that day so that you can see what I used to do and what I do now. Gaffigan had it as a bonus feature on one of his DVDs. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. I, I, I don't have those kind of balls. <laughs> But that's but that's fascinating too because there's some people who are uh, vehemently against taking a class. Well, they you, think you yeah. can't learn. You know, or or it's more. It's either either they say you can't learn it, or they're just more against the people teaching them. Sure, sure. Saying that they're just in it for the money. They don't really want you to become a. Comedian. You know what's funny is that when I took the class, I was actually part of a lot of comics that. I want to say really kind of started a little boom in Dallas. And, you know, actually Steve was one of them. Like there's, a, you know, it's, um, there are a bunch of comics that we all started together and we all started doing these open mics and we started kind of, a lot of comics started creating their own open mics around town because we all took the class, but then we had nowhere to perform, you know, cause it's like, well, cause there wasn't a scene, right? You know, so I, I remember like there was one open mic that I always talk about that really, taught me how to not care how many people were ever paying attention to you. It's like this bar called Bell Bottoms in Mm -hmm. Arlington. And they would have the open mic on Monday nights uh, with Monday night football. So, and they wouldn't turn off the TV. So you would have to compete against Monday night football for people's attention. And the stage was right next to the screen. So you had to be really funny for anyone to care about what you were saying. 
because you were staring, like, you know, you're like, what's up with ketchup? Are you ready for some football? <laughs> it's just crazy, you know? Yeah, you just made a memory flashback for me because at the same time you were doing that in Dallas, I was living in uh, Arizona, and I would still, I would still, I would MC at the Tempe Improv one weekend every six weeks. Uh-huh. But I remember there was an open mic at a bar a couple blocks away, so this is right off of, Arizona State University. Yeah. And they had the TVs on, and <laughs> everybody was watching, and it was Jackass. So you try to do stand up yeah. comedy against Jackass. Yeah. And, I, and I felt like such a Jackass even agreeing you know, to do it. You're like, why am I here? But that that open mic, that open mic, and there was a, there's a club in Dallas called The Back Door that a lot of comics, they, that's where they start doing their sets. Mm-hmm. And it's a club where you have to work clean to teach you how to be able to work clean when needed. And this club, we would have shows if two people showed up, and we would have to do this show in front of two people. So that, like, the mixture of the bell bottoms with Monday Night Football and the club, you know, doing a show in front of hardly anyone taught me to never. I, I'm I love performing in front of no one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did a college gig. In upstate New York, where I I performed for one kid, and the school refused to cancel the gig because they were going to pay me anyway. So they're like, "Nah, this guy showed up. You got to do your hour for this guy." So what's your what's your style when you when you're dealing with an audience of one? I talk or... to them like a conversation. I mean, really, I, I get to know them, and I the guy, the one guy, yeah. I the this is so sad because it was a college that that had set up. I want to say like 300 chairs, <laughs> you know, like 300 chairs in an auditorium, you know, and the stage, there was stage and like stage lights and everything. Mm-hmm. Like you would have, you would have assumed that maybe Seinfeld could pop in and do the show, right? Like it, it's very fancy. And then it turns out that at that college, there was a frat that I don't even remember the name of the show, but mm-hmm. there was a cast of dudes that had this show on MTV years ago that this frat hired to come and party with them for the night, and it was the, the night of my night. show. So everybody was at this frat partying with the MTV dudes who mm-hmm. who are so popular, I can't remember the name of the show anymore. <laughs> and the show was supposed to start at 9. Mm-hmm. No one showed up. And uh, it was like 9.30. And I was like, can we just cancel this? And at 9.40, one kid shows up. And the campus, like the activities director, is like, "You're doing an hour for him." <laughs> and I had an opening act. Like they hired an opening <laughs> act, and the opening guy, like the feature, went up and did thirty minutes, mm-hmm. thirty minutes on stage for this one guy, this one kid. It seems it's. It were, rem- so were you watching the were you watching <laughs> the the feature act, or were you, were you watching the one audience member? I was. While this is happening, I was watching the the one guy. And what was his attitude like? <laughs> It kind of reminded me of the movie The Toy mm-hmm. with like Richard Pryor, where like that's the kind of thing that they would do. Like the kid is right. so rich that he's like, you know what? Just perform stand up for me for an hour. Why not? The kid, the kid could have given a shit that we were there. Like the kid, I don't even know why I, he wandered in. I honestly think he wandered in because it was half auditor- auditorium, half cafeteria, like a cafetorium. Mm-hmm. I think he went for food. <laughs> and it was like, oh, there's a thing. <laughs> He sat down and he's just like arms crossed, like ah, I guess I'm here. And after the feature <laughs> brought me up, I was like, "Look, dude, I'm not getting up on that stage. I'm gonna sit next to you. Do you want the mic or not? 
And then he's like, I don't care. And then I'm like, well, I'm not going to use the mic. And I sat down and I did my hour for him. <laughs> I did my hour and like he left. I mean, a couple, you know, a couple chuckles and stuff. And then at the end, I'm like, hey, thanks for coming, man. And he's like, cool. And he left. And that was it. <laughs> I wonder if he was just stone out of his mind. Who knows? <laughs> and it was that thing. It was such, it's so ridiculous because I remember asking for his name and I remember saying, Man, this is a night I'll never forget. I'll never forget your name. I can't remember. I was going to say. <laughs> I can't remember mm. who he was. <laughs> Stand up. Yeah. That wasn't your first road gig, though. <laughs> no, no, no. That was one of many. I did. I was very into the NACA scene for a while. I did. Did you do NACA before you did, like, the road proper? Yes. Well, you know, clubs don't book you if, if you don't have credits. You know, my only credit back then was, what, um... Live at Gotham from like 2007. Okay, and I had done, I had done one of those like Showtime specials where it's I'm one of five comics, you right. know, so very forgettable. I, the co- you know, clubs, clubs. When I was working at the Addison Improv, clubs were really into bringing in features and building the features, and you know, they pick people that they wanted to build, and, and you saw. When the clubs got excited about somebody to, as a feature, they're like, oh, I, I knew. I'm like, oh, they're they're prepping them to headline the club. And then all of a sudden, with the internet and everything, it just, it, 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 everything changed. You know, it, word of mouth wasn't as important anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. word of mouth back then when I was working at the office at the Addison Improv, I could see the first time we had Daniel Tosh. We had him for a full week. It was like Wednesday through Sunday back then. Wednesday night, we came. Like he came in, I wasn't really familiar with him. He came in destroyed. I mean, destroyed. And throughout the week, you saw people coming back to see him again. You know, and yeah. that would happen with certain people. I saw that with like Kathleen over the year. Like you know, like she would bring in so many people. There were people that just that's how you built the audience. There was like yeah. The first never... time I saw Tosh was he was a feature for Judy Tenuta. Really. Oh, wow. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, this was in Tempe at the improv. But I knew, like, he had such a crushing yeah, 20, yeah, yeah. 25 I, I, minutes. I, I, it's hilarious. I mean, and it's funny because I, I – And he knew it, too. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. I know. I know. That's part of his charm, though, yeah. that he knows it, you yeah. know. And it's funny. Back then, there's never a set way to have a career in stand-up. But back then, there were certain signs that I saw that I'm like, oh, this guy is going to – this guy can has the chance to do well. Mm-hmm. If he does the work and he doesn't, you know, like this guy's going to do it. Doesn't kill himself. Right, you know. And it's funny because now, um, now the clubs want you to be established before they take a chance on you. And they want to make sure that you sell tickets, which I guess – I get it. You're, you're a business. You need to fill seats. But – how do you become someone that sells tickets if you if you don't get booked anywhere? You know, it's like right. now you have to do videos. Now you have to do all this extra work. Like, it, it's weird how as a comic now, you have to have Twitter, Facebook, Periscope, Snapchat. You got to do all your you got to do extra sketches. Maybe you got to do a podcast. Now, everything to make sure you're reaching out to everyone. When do you have time to write? Mitch had Mitch had that had that well, all of his bits were great, but he had the, the bit about going to Hollywood and uh, being a yes. chef, and they go, "Can yes. you farm? <laughs> yeah, can you farm exactly?" 
And I just wonder, like, what he would make of this world where it's just it's just expected yes. now. Yeah, I, uh, that for me, I started doing NACA. I think I started doing NACA maybe in 2009, maybe 2010. And, you know, I was uh, I, I went to showcase and I booked I want to say I booked maybe 40 some schools the first time I went to NACA. And I worked clean. I did an hour clean, and I was pretty popular. And then I went to NACA Nationals. And that year, Snooki fucked me over so bad because Snooki was charging. Snooki. I want to say Snooki went to Na- NACA Nationals. Mm-hmm. And I want to say she was charging $20,000 to ha- to go to your school and be interviewed by students for an hour. Like, that was her thing. It's so weird. Like, NACA... Yeah. This is where the comics, a lot of comics, we go do colleges, we go do an hour. It's it's kind of brutal at times because you're driving around the country everywhere, like paycheck to paycheck. There's not a lot of money when you start out into it because you have to pay your, your way to get there. But these NACA conferences, I loved them. NACA was very good to me. But at the same time, I have a booth next to a face painter. You know, and I'm yeah. I'm writing jokes in my notebook, and I'm competing against a guy that can make you look like a puppy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, <laughs> I went as a newspaper reporter. NACA Nationals were in Boston, mm-hmm. and I was working at the Boston Herald, and I went. When was that? T- 2006. Oh, okay, because the Boston – Snooki was Boston. 2005 or 2006. That's hilarious. Uh-huh. And um, I didn't see the show, but I went to the booths, yeah. and I remember – I remember talking to Chris Hardwick, uh-huh. Hard and Firm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, Hard and Firm, yeah, they yeah. They had a booth, and they gave me a folder, and I had <laughs> the press kit. Yeah, the little packet. And I was, like, the only one talking to them <laughs> because I knew who Hard and Firm sure. were. But then, like, they were, they were in a row of, like, six booths, and then on the other side there was a really popular one. Then it was MTV people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, like, yeah. To do what? To yeah, exactly. And it's weird because the first time I did NACA Nationals, I was really – I was hoping to book schools mm-hmm. to survive. And Snooki, you know, when people saw that Snooki was there, no one that day got booked. Really, No one really ever got – they didn't get bookings because all the students lined up to meet Snooki. Even if they weren't going to book her, they just wanted to meet her. So – and my booth was, I think, like catty corner to hers. Mm-hmm. So the line wrapped around – my booth to where I was obstructed. You couldn't even see me because all the students are just like waiting in line for Snooky. And you, you couldn't even get their attention while they're just. Oh, no, they, they could have cared less. I was there like they're too excited getting ready to see what they're going to tell Snooky when they see her. OK, you know, and that year was brutal. And I started doing I did a couple of the regionals and I did well at the regionals. 2012 was the NACA National Convention that changed everything for me. NACA's I did to build up my hour, and I knew that if I could make the students laugh, I could make pretty much anyone laugh because they, a lot of times, they're very hard audiences. And 2012, though, I was really broke. I was on the verge of moving back to Texas. I was living in L.A. Um, I couldn't get booked at colleges. I, I mean, in clubs. I was only doing colleges, and I was barely making ends meet, and I was done. I was... I was done. Like, I was broke. And Were you broke to the point of considering quitting? Oh, yeah, or absolutely. No, no, no. Taking I, another yes, job? Yes. I, I, I literally, um, 
I was driving home to Texas and I got the call from my agent back then. And we said, you know, he said he was talking to me about NACA Nationals and I told him, I can't afford to go. I, I don't have money to go to NACA Nationals. Even if I booked a couple schools, I can't get there. Like, I'm done. I, I, I was driving back to Texas to visit family and kind of kind of see what I could do in Texas, you know. And um, does, it, does a NACA gig, do they all expenses paid or do they just give you they give, money and expect you to cover yes. a tr- air, airfare or train or yeah, rental car yeah. or – and lodging, pretty much. You have well, to cover it depends. It depends on when you start off. It's mm-hmm. all all inclusive. Like this is your money. You figure out how to get here. Okay. Then when you get further along into it, they'll give give you a hotel. Okay. Or, you know, blah blah. But at that point, no, I, I had no money. I, I had no money. It, nothing. So if you got a gig out of NACA, you would spend the money. Right. Well, I mean, think about it. I would get booked there. in the middle of nowhere. Let's say that the the gig paid a thousand dollars. Sometimes these small towns, it would take me $700 to get to the college because it's a small town, you know, and, and the airports know that they have you because there's only two flights that go in and out. So you spend all your money getting there. And then, you know, so you're kind of screwed. And you didn't have club gigs. Didn't have any club gigs, like no club gigs at all. Um, I had booked a club gig. I had booked a club gig in Texas and, uh, when I booked it, they said, "Well, you know, the owner hates women, so you have to come in. Uh, you have to come in for like nine hundred bucks for the whole week, Wednesday through Sunday, to prove that women are funny, to prove that you're funny." And I was so broke that I'm like, "I have to do this. Like, you know, uh, I need to pay rent, so right. I'm going to do this week." And uh, that was like the kind of work I would get. It was that like, just that one gig in Texas, but everything else was all colleges. Twenty twelve. I had calculated that I needed, at my rate back then, I needed about nine colleges to book so that I could survive for the next year and not quit stand-up. And when I went to the conference, I showcased, I emceed one of the showcases, so you get to do about 25 minutes longer than anybody else. And I don't know what it was, but that showcase, it's like the stars aligned and everything went perfect for me in that showcase. Now, after the showcase, you go to this marketplace, and that's where you have the booth that we've been talking about. And after my showcase, I see all these kids lining up, and I'm thinking, ah, shit, Snooki's here. Like, someone like Snooki is here again. And it turns out that they're all lining up to meet me. It was, I, I, had, I had done so well that they got in line to, to meet me, and I, uh, my agent said, you should stay an extra day. Uh, this is, you're going to have to meet students. They, they want, and I had no idea what was happening because – I had already given up. In my mind, I, I was kind of done. I, I, was, I, I was just finished with stand-up. Like, I, I was kind of doing this to please him because he begged me to go to NACA Nationals. So I had cashed in all my miles and everything to get there. But I, I, even then, I'm like, I can't afford to change my plane ticket to stay an extra day. I don't have the 150 bucks to change the ticket. So what's your mindset? You're about to quit. Yeah. And it's like, well, I'm just doing this to appease my agent. So how do you have the mindset when you're emceeing to to well, turn it around? Like, what's your mindset? I mean, my set's my set. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's but, like but your head, your psychology. Well, because you, changes well, it. but that's a, the thing is, is that I only know how to do that set. Mm-hmm. So I can't change anything. I can't change the way I do it. I mean, for me, 
But you can be going through the motions. And... Well, for me, it was kind of like if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out. The I'm going to have fun with it. I mean, I'm. This is kind of like the hail mary. Like you want to see, it, is it going to hit? Can I get the nine? You know, let's try to be very likable and see if the nine <laughs> schools want me. That's what I thought. I thought if I don't do well here, I'm done. I'm. I don't want to do it anymore. Like I'm done. It's too. It's too much. I was by myself on the road all the time. I wasn't making any money. You know, I, I, I never got to talk to people. I was, you know, I mean, it was just kind of depressing. It was so depressing. And um, I remember I changed my ticket. And I, uh, next day in NACA, they do like the little, I call them like the auctions, mm-hmm. where they just say your name and they're like, who wants to book you? Next day, I come back in, and everybody's shaking my hand and blah, 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 and I had gotten 130 schools. Now, I was at, like, 130 schools wanted to book me, and I thought, it didn't hit me. <laughs> it didn't hit me that it was 130 schools, like, and I remember... You go, well, that's 121 more than nine. Yeah, and, and actually, <laughs> I thought, I wanted nine, I got 130, and I thought, there's no way, this doesn't make sense, because... 24 hours ago I'm uh, I'm quitting and now uh, you're telling me that I I don't have to quit how does that even make sense like how does that work and I couldn't get it and then finally my agent at the time had to stop me mid-sentence and said Costella you did it you don't have to worry about the bills for you know a, a, a while like right. a long time and when I thought that because we because I was so broke I remember I actually called him mm-hmm. and told him that I had gigs and we both started crying <laughs> you know like because it was just I wasn't quitting stand-up and it was this thing where I, I wasn't quitting stand-up and I couldn't believe that I wasn't quitting stand-up one day to the next I went from everything being taken away from me to the next day having a second chance to continue doing this thing that I loved. And I went out and I did all these 130 schools. And after the 130 schools, um, after the 130 schools, that's when I got Conan. And that was my first late night spot. And I got Conan. I did Conan. I did very well on Conan. Like I had a good set. I was happy with my set. And the president of ABC saw my set from Conan, the producer of my show. At that time, I had I had changed agents agencies because uh, my college agent had been let go from the agency that I was at. So I was looking for new representation. And you've done your half hour. No, I hadn't done it yet. I actually I did. Conan. I remember we met when yes. you were filming your half yes, hour. Yes, I, I I got the half hour because of Conan Mm -hmm. and you know the half hour was like my big break in 2011 but I I I didn't have a development deal yet okay the producer when I got my development deal the producer that I made the deal with she got the half hour and sent it to the president of ABC and said remember her like this is this is a half hour of her material if you want to see it (laughs) and the president was like I I, I want to meet her. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how it happened from Conan and, you know, the half hour. So how much how much did you t- did you learn from going through that process of the, the week at NACA when it kind of the process repeated itself with ABC? 
where you thought mm-hmm. you have the development deal, you mm-hmm. think you're going to have a pilot, and then you don't. Uh-huh. But then you get this money and you decide to yeah. throw another Hail Mary. Yeah. Essentially. Well, I mean, I was it, it like, worked well, the first it worked, time. Yeah. <laughs> it worked how the first much time. of that was going on in your head? Like, oh, I can. I just kind of figured I'm like, we well, can roll the dice. For, yeah. Well, for me, you know, I tell people all the time. It's like I think that growing up. Uh, growing up with no money has made me so fearless because at the end of the day, what's the worst that can happen? I go back to not having money. I grew up like that. So right. it's not like I'm not used to being poor. So for me, because it happened at NACA, I get scared very, t- uh, you know, I- I'm scared of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. whenever I try to do things. But at the same time, I'm thinking, if I don't do it, I'll never know. W- what's the worst thing? Not knowing what's going to happen. So... When the thing happened, when I didn't get the, my pilot didn't get picked up, and we decided, the producers and I decided to use this money that we had to shoot a pilot presentation, and it had never been done before, and we knew it had never been done before, and we thought, well, but it's never been done before, so they can't say no to this, because they don't know what they're seeing. Right. So, at the worst, at the worst, they don't pick up the pilot, and, you know, now I know that they didn't want me anyway. Long shot, though, I would make this pilot that they didn't take serious. You know, like, they weren't considering it a pilot. They are like, okay, you can do it. From going there and being the long shot to getting picked up was NACA all over again. And for me, what I learned from NACA and the ABC development was that you kind of have to treat things like you have nothing to lose. Uh, really, the question is, how bad do you want it? Mm-hmm. Do you, are you willing to sacrifice everything to see if it happens? And because if it happens, it's great. But if it doesn't, it's very depressing. It, it, it's it's killing you. Like it'll kill you. So I thought, I've got nothing to lose. Let's try it. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. Was was putting Christella in a law mm-hmm. firm setting? Was that some sort of alternate reality for you? No, actually, you know, I picked. I picked law because um, in my family, nobody nobody understood what stand-up was. And uh, I wanted to have the story resonate with people that grew up like me. So I thought if people like my family didn't know what stand-up was and I was doing it, you know, then there's other people that uh, you can't explain it. It's a weird thing to explain to certain people what stand-up is and how right. it works. So I wanted to pick a career that took a long time. That even after you're done with college, you have to go to extra college, because I knew that in my neighborhood, a lot of people don't understand. They don't. Right. Ad- they don't get that concept of going to college and you keep going to college. So I picked that because I thought it was an easier way to describe it to people that didn't understand a career that takes a long time to get to, and people along the way are like, "Are you done yet? Are you done yet?" So for a second, I thought I should make her a comic, just like me, and then I thought. No, because people, there's a lot of people out there that are, that are not going to get it, the people I wanted to reach. Well, when you were a kid, growing up poor with essentially a single mother, yeah. how did you explain it the first time? I, I didn't. I mean, I, honestly, you know, my mom, I wanted to act. I wanted to act, and my mom... Uh, how when, old were you when that took hold? I, 10, 9, something. I mean, it, you know, uh, my mom thought that... Acting meant that I wanted to do novellas in Mexico, mm-hmm. so she thought. I mean, you know, she's like, oh, I know, but you're like, but like, 
you're not pretty like you know like because like the Mexican chicks are so hot in the novellas and stuff. They like, didn't the have way, the ugly Betty one. No, 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 they did. They did, but like ugly Betty was super ugly. Like you know how America is a very pretty girl. Like mm-hmm. if you see her, you're right, like America she's she's, yeah, she's, yeah, she's, she's ugly pretty. Betty. Like the Mexican version mm-hmm. of ugly Betty. Like this girl. Like drawn in, like you know, unibrow, mm-hmm. like just like fake. But not makeup. like Frida Kahlo as some Hayek. No, like no, 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 no. Like right. this is like no, no, no. This is mm-hmm. like no, it, intentionally super gross. Right. Like it, in Mexico, she would be but like super ugly, gross Betty. But your mom couldn't even picture you. No, 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 not at all. Like that. Like that's my mom. Like did she know. want you to be like a lawyer or my my like mom that? wanted me to cut hair. Like, that was her okay. dream job. She always said that even in a recession, people's hair grows. So, like, that was her thing. Like, very True. practical. Yeah. She's a survivalist. But um, my my mom, when I told her I wanted to act, she was, she, she was like, no. You know, and I got accepted into a bunch of colleges and for theater, and my mom told me not to go. And uh, she, typical mom, like, in my neighborhood, I told her I was. I'm like, I'm... I don't care what you think. I have to go. Like, this mm-hmm. thing is bigger than me. I want to do this thing. I don't know what I want to do, but I want to do this thing. She got down on her knees, started crying, begged me not to go. I still left. We stopped talking. She refused to talk to me. We didn't talk for a while. And then finally, after a while, we made up because she started getting sick. Yeah, you talk and about this in your act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was that thing. Like, we just stopped, we, we stopped, you know, we stopped talking. And then um, I started doing stand-up. Finally, because I was told as an actor that back then I couldn't have a lot of opportunities in theater. I wanted to do theater. As a Latina, I had a teacher tell me that I could do West Side Story, Chorus Line. And back then, Rent was getting big, but it wasn't the hit that it was. So back then, Mimi wasn't a choice. So I did a I did a production of West Side Story. I did Chorus Line, and then I thought, I think I'm done, you know, for theater. And then I I told myself, you know, you really like stand up, and it's this thing that allows you to write your own material and perform it. So this is the closest thing you get to acting. You actually get to write what you're saying, these words, and you don't have anybody else writing your story. So. That's kind of why I started doing stand-up. My mom had passed away, and I wanted to talk about my mom, and it w- I couldn't afford therapy. And I started doing stand-up, and I think the evolution of my stand-up, I never knew. I, w- I never thought I was going to get a show. I was too busy just doing stand-up and mm-hmm. talking about my family. Other people told me – they other people came to me and asked me if I wanted a show. I had never, I had never looked for it because I was always told that I couldn't have it. You know, um, for me as a Latino woman doing it, like other people, there's always been people in my life that told me it was an impossibility. So I put it out of my mind. When people came and approached me, I thought, really? Okay, let's try it. You know, and that's kind of how I treated the whole development process where I'm like, all right, we're going to do this. And it's it's like the classic improv. Yes, and, you know, <laughs> so I just yes, and everything. And I ended up on the air. And now that you've been through that process... What does it tell you about what you can do or what you want to do next? Well, you know, what I realized from the whole process was um, I realized that uh, in my experience with the show, the show was based on my family and my life. 
I don't think that the network and studio, I don't think they were ready to accept my story as my story. They had way too many opinions about my life. And it's weird to have somebody tell you that your life isn't your life. It's weird for somebody to say, ah, bullshit, that's not true. And you're like, right. ah. invalidate Yeah, your yeah, yeah. Experience. And you're just like, but, but it is true. <laughs> I, uh, why would I make this up? If I wasn't going to make up a life, I'd make up a really badass life about myself, you know? So I know that from network and studio side, I think that um, I have to be very aggressive about making sure that my voice is heard so that they understand that stories like that exist. Because when the show got canceled, I started going on the road, and I was doing stand-up during the production, too. But after the show was canceled, I went out on the road, and people come out, and they will stand in line forever after the shows to meet me. They bring me gifts. The people that saw this show, there's so many of them that saw themselves in that show that when I see the reaction they had to my show and how connected they are, I realize that there is a market for that. There's a there's a place for my show somewhere, you know. And what I learned from the first thing, I learned what to what to look for in the next project, which for me would be, you know, my show is owned by Twentieth, and it was um, aired on ABC. Um, when you when you're owned by a studio that's not a network. Uh, they don't promote you as much right. because they're they not, don't own you. They're not right, invested. They're not, right. They're not actually invested in it. Yeah. So I didn't know that. No one told me. You know, so you actually have to go through that. I had to go through that with my first show <laughs> to learn that for the next show, which is painful, you know, because then you realize when the show got picked up, you wondered why you never saw a billboard and you never saw a poster. And, you, and then it wasn't after the fact that you're like, oh, that's how it works, <laughs> you know? So that was kind of eye-opening, you know? Especially since people are still discovering the show. Exactly. I mean, I follow you on social media, so I see you have have to respond to people all the time. All the time. Who are asking about just now going, when's season two? Yeah, yeah, the show was canceled a year ago, and it was good. I I got a lot of love and support from people after it was canceled. And it was slowly veering off, mm-hmm. and then network like Netflix picked it up and put it on, and now they're replaying the only season. And again, it started out this whole new wave of people. They're like, "What is this show? What is it coming back on?" Like, "Oh my god!" And you're like, "I was just getting over it and moving on." Like, I just you opened up the wound. Have you formed a support group with Jim Jeffries? <laughs> because that happens to him too with his FX show. Yeah. People are just now finding it. Isn't that crazy? Like it, it's like, so crazy. To break it to them, eh, done. I, I know. It's, I'm on the next thing. <laughs> I know. Come that see me on tour. Ago. Exactly. Exactly. That, Come see me in Hamilton. I know. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Hamilton is what you were waiting for. Your, I I guess I think so. I think self. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's my theater the self. Theater, because now the teachers can tell you there's a. Yes. A place for you. That's well, why I, you're I, in New York, isn't it? Actually, that's... You're here to... You're here to <laughs> I know. casting. They're I casting have plotted. Right I have slowly integrated myself into the family, <laughs> and I'm... But for me, that's why I love Hamilton so much. For mm. me, Hamilton... Hamilton in the theater world is what I think um, is a perfect example of what the, this, the canvas should be in every medium when it comes to entertainment. Stand-up, TV, movie, anything. Uh, 
there's three characters in Hamilton, the Schuyler sisters, their sisters, and in this production of the of the play, of the musical, none of them look alike. They're all different, you know. They're all very different. When I see Hamilton, I'm not like bullshit. They look different. They can't be sisters. They're just very good, and you accept that they're very good, you know. And I feel like for me, I'm such a fan of the show because they just realize that if you put talented people that deserve the shot. If you give them that shot, they thrive. <laughs> I know, I know. I, know. <laughs> uh, I ask everybody this. What's the last uh, – who's the last person or last thing that's really given you great advice? Oh, let me see. Because it could be something think. you read or seen, not an actual person. Let me see. Uh, no offense, Steve. <laughs> let me see. I'm Steve trying to think. Steve isn't sitting here watching us the whole time. I know. Let's see. Um, I'm trying to think. You know – the one thing that I actually that I go back to a lot whenever I feel down is actually um, Maya Angelou and Dave Chappelle's um, Iconoclast oh, nice. from Sundance. Yeah, uh, it's one of my favorite things to watch whenever I feel down. Whatever it is. it's a part where Maya Angelou says, uh, um, "You can't pick it up, you can't put it down," which basically means you you can't take compliments to heart you know too much because then you have to take the criticisms in as much too right you kind of have to accept everything for what it is and you just got to try to do what you're doing without trying to think of anything pro or con because if you think about it too much it just starts fucking with you like you know it's like basically that's what the idea is and for me i have it on my like i have it on my ipod and i like on my phone and stuff like my ipad and I love that episode. I mean, for me, it's just it's cool because when she says that, you can see Chappelle's face. It's just a cool <laughs> connection. It's like it's such a great thing to say. I always think about that one. And on the flip side, when somebody new comes up to you and asks you for advice, what's the first thing you tell them? I always tell them that they have to write about things that are honest to who they are and not what they think funny is. I think that um, when you start being specific about what you are, who you are, what your situation is, people will relate to it and find it genuinely funny rather than, you know, when when Hedberg passed away, there were so many comics that came out that were trying, you know, younger comics. Right, who were that, emulating. Yeah, him. emulating completely. And it's like, but that's not you. And that's why it worked with Hedberg because that was Hedberg. You find your own voice, you know, and it's weird because a lot of I think that when you start out, you start writing what you think is funny and then you realize you're like, I, I think I'm trying too hard. I think I'm trying to be something I'm not. And then when you realize that and you start writing things that really speak to you, you realize that you become a different comic than what you thought you were going to be at the beginning. That's what I tell them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Christella, thank you for. Uh, extending your New York trip a few minutes. I know it wasn't to talk to me, but, <laughs> but thanks. No, for, it was. But it thanks. was. I have that kind of money now. I, I, I could. I have the hundred fifty dollars to change tickets. I came here and extended it just to do this oh, with you. Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks for making me feel good. I won't pick it up though. I won't put it down. <laughs> Don't, yeah, exactly. Thanks. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. 
The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, local by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first.